Yeah. Hey, if you got a Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 50. We've been preaching for 10 or 11 weeks through the Old Testament story of Joseph, and we're, we're going to wrap that up here today. So I want to recap. If you've binged with us all the way through that, uh, great. And if you haven't, let me kind of catch you up. So we're really introduced to Joseph in chapter 37. He's a teenager. He's the favored son of his father. His brothers really kind of are bitter about that. And then they really become bitter because God's revealing truth to Joseph through some dreams, which is what God did in the days before we had a Bible, right? And so Joseph is hearing these dreams and seeing these dreams, and these dreams seem to indicate that there's coming a day that his brothers are going to bow down before him. Like a dummy, he runs off and tells his brothers these dreams, which just make them hate him all the more. So they decide we're going to throw him in a pit, leave him for dead. And then one of the brothers said, no, let's not do that. Let's just sell him as a slave. And so some traders are passing through. They purchase him. He ends up living in Egypt. While he's in Egypt, he is purchased by an Egyptian official by the name of Potiphar. And because God's hand is on Joseph and everything that he does is successful, Potiphar promotes him to the place where he becomes Potiphar's personal assistant. But Potiphar's wife, she kind of gets the eyes on Joseph and multiple times she's trying to seduce him. But because of his commitment to honor God and to honor Potiphar, he refused those advancements every time, eventually resulting in Potiphar's wife becoming so angry that she falsely accuses him of a crime. He ends up in prison. Pharaoh has two servants who also end up in prison. They start having crazy dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams for them. One goes back to work for Pharaoh, gets his old job back. The other goes back and gets executed. But the guy that gets his job back, he doesn't do any favors for Joseph. He just kind of forgets all about him until one day, Pharaoh starts having crazy dreams. And then that servant goes, oh yeah, I remember this dude I met in prison and his God gave him the ability to interpret dreams. So that's who we need to get to come talk to Pharaoh. So sure enough, they bring Joseph up to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And he says, Pharaoh, what's going to happen is there's going to be some good years of harvest, but then there's going to be seven years of terrible famine. And then Joseph takes it a step further and he just starts doling out some unsolicited advice to say to Pharaoh, hey, here's what you're going to need to do to deal with that situation. Here's how you need to handle that and so forth. And the Pharaoh's just blown away. And he says, I've never met anybody with this kind of wisdom. I tell you what, kid, why don't I just make you prime minister of Egypt? And I'm going to put you in charge of all that has to do with the famine and with food distribution. So basically, Joseph is now 30 years old. He's been in Egypt now for about uh, 15 years or so, and he is essentially the CEO of Egypt. The famine does come just as God had revealed to him that it would come. It not only impacts Egypt, it impacts that entire region of the world, even back down to Israel where his family was still living after all those years. They run out of food. And so his brothers travel to Egypt. They get in the food line. And when they get to the front of the food line, lo and behold, who's there? in charge of the food line. It is none other but Joseph, but he's grown up and he is dressed like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And he begins to put them through a series of situations to be able to determine, are they the same old scalawags that they were back in the day, or have they had a change of heart? Are they different? There's a desire in Joseph to reconcile with his brothers and to have a relationship. But if there's been no change in them, then it would be impossible to have any kind of healthy sort of relationship with them. So they go into these series of situations and lo and behold, they, 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 they test out 
pretty well. And Joseph comes to realize they're not the same men that they were. And so he does indeed begin to reconcile with them. He reveals his identity to them. He sends them back home and says, get dad, bring all the family. And I'm going to set y'all up with a place to live in Egypt. You're going to be provided for, you're going to be cared for. Everybody got it. I just preached 10 sermons right there in like three and a half minutes. How about that? Can we, we don't pass offering plates anymore, but now would be a good time just to pass an offering plate, right? So now we get to chapter 48 and 49 and Joseph's dad, Jacob, he's now really old. He's like in his 130s and he's in the process of dying. And so they call all the family members in and he speaks a real personal and even prophetic word to each of his sons. And he tells his sons, listen, guys, when I die, I'm not going to be buried in Egypt. You're going you're to take me to McCullough Funeral Home. We're going to have a little viewing, but then you're going to haul me down to Israel. I want to be buried in the family cemetery over there where mom and dad, Isaac and Rebecca are, where Mimaw and Peepaw, Abraham and Sarah are. And so that's what they, they do. He dies, and this amazing funeral procession begins to stretch toward Egypt. And I love this line at the end of chapter 49, verse 33. It says of Jacob that when he died, he was gathered to his people. I love that line here because that reminds me of this. Every person, every life is valuable. Every life is made to last for eternity. And I love that it says he's gathered with his, his family that's gone on before, gathered to his people. They're going to take his body and they're going to put it in the cemetery. But his soul, at the minute that his soul leaves that body, he is reunited with his people that have gone on before with Rebecca and Isaac and Abraham and Sarah. Listen, I want to tell you today, if you don't know this, the Bible's clear that when your soul leaves your body, the Bible says this way, when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord just that fast. If you're a born again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ today, when your soul departs your body, you're going to be with the Lord. Listen, we need to be reminded of this. We're not bodies that happen to have souls. We're souls that happen to have a body. And by the way, here's a bit of good news. This will probably get a lot of amens today. This isn't the only body you're ever going to have. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This isn't the only one we're going to have. This one in this broken, sinful, fallen world, man, we get sick. We get tired. We grow weary. We experience physical death. But the Bible is clear that one day God's going to give us a new body. Our soul is going to have a new house to live in, a new body that's not going to perish, not going to become sick, not going to get worn out. And we're going to we're going to get to live with Jesus forever. And let me, let me be clear about this too, in case you don't know this. We're not going to turn into angels. I have no interest, to be honest, in becoming an angel. So we're not going to become angels. Neither are we going to, neither are we going to become little Caspers who go back to the old house and spook people. All right? That's not going to be happening either. You're going to be you. You're going to be you forever. And you're going to get a new body, a perfect body for your soul to live in on a perfect earth, in the presence of our perfect God forever. Some of you went, wait, we're going to live on earth? Yeah, not this one, but a new one. He's going to make all things new. 
So I thought we're going to live in heaven. Well, we are because heaven and earth are going to come together as one and we're going to live with the Lord. He's going to dwell among his people. It's going to be like it was pre-sin, pre-fall back in the garden in Genesis chapter one and two and and three. And it's going to be an amazing thing. See, we're earthlings, y'all. This is why some of you think about heaven. You're like, yeah, it just seems kind of boring, right? Poor old Hank Williams Jr. If it ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. I hope somebody told Hank Jr., man, let me tell you, we're, we're earthlings and we're going to live on a new earth. That's going to be our experience. That's why for some of you, the idea of floating around in heaven seems weird and odd and unenjoyable because that's not what you're going to do. That's not what we've been created for. That's not what we're made for. We're going to inhabit a perfect earth with perfect bodies in the very presence of a perfect God. So when you get to the end of Genesis 50 or there in Genesis 50, you got this big funeral procession, right? Where they're taking Jacob back over to Israel. And it's not just Joseph and the brothers, it's Egypt's uh, dignitaries, Pharaoh's rulers, their elders. It's this huge procession of people. It takes weeks to get there and back. And then Joseph and his brothers, they continue to live out their days there in Egypt. Now, here's where I geek out a little bit. I'm a little nerdy when it comes to this. But archaeologists, some archaeologists now believe they have found where Jacob's family lived in Egypt. They've uncovered a a settlement there that they know from the type of structures they found there that they were built by Semitic people. They're the type of structures Semitic people would have built. And what's interesting about this one particular area is this home was constructed with 12 columns. And out in the property, there's 12 distinct grave sites on the property. 11 of those are Semitic in style, but one of the 12 is Egyptian in style. It's actually a pyramid. And inside that pyramid, what they found is the statue of an Egyptian ruler. He is wearing, get this, a multicolored robe. But the pigmentation of the face of the statue is not the traditional color of pigmentation they would use to represent Egyptian officials. It's actually a more yellowish type of pigmentation that the Egyptians used to represent Semitic peoples. That's kind of interesting, right, to think about. Now, if you nerd out on all that kind of stuff like I do, there's a great documentary called Patterns of Evidence. So I'd encourage you just check it out. Look for that. You can Google it and search it. Don't start watching it right now. Hang with us. And later tonight, you can check out Patterns of Evidence. And here's one thing that I think needs to be noted about this archaeological discovery that's not shocking to me, but I want to tell you about it anyway. They get in that pyramid and they find all kinds of relics and, you know, the statue, all this kind of stuff. But guess what they didn't find? They didn't find any bones, which is a little weird. I've been to Egypt. I've, I've been in the museum in Cairo. I've seen the mummies. If they had let me bust through the glass and, you know, do the whole Scooby-Doo thing, and, you know, take all the wrappings off of them. You get down, there's some bones in there. But in this particular tomb that they found, there's no bones in that. Is that Joseph's tomb? Well, it's interesting because here's what the Bible says, Genesis chapter 50, verse 22. So Joseph and his brothers and their families continued to live in Egypt. Joseph lived to the age of 110. He lived to see three generations of descendants of his son Ephraim, and he lived to see the birth of the children of Manasseh's son Machir, whom he claimed as his own. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. 
he will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath. And he said, when God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him and his body was placed in a coffin. That's where the story of Genesis ends. There's bones and a coffin in some tomb in Egypt. That's where Joseph is lying in state. But that's not the last time we hear about Joseph's bones in the Bible. Check this out. The next book over, Exodus. It's, it's just a few pages over, but it's 400 years. 400 years, right? Watch this. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them among the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. By the way, some of you are trying to figure out why is God not taking me straight from point A to point B? Because you might not be ready for point B. He could have got the Israelites from point A to point B quick and in a hurry, but they weren't ready for that. They had to go through a season of preparation. Thus the Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. 19, look at this. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for 400 years. They knew where his bones were. And they knew what he wanted. When y'all get out of here, when God keeps his promise and he takes you to the promised land, get my bones out of here. And so Moses gets the bones of Joseph because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this. He said, God will certainly come to help you. When he does, you must take my bones with you from this place. So Exodus just quoted the book of Genesis. So for 40 years, Moses and the children of Israel, they're wandering around the wilderness, right? Got the cloud by day, fire by night, manna quail. The whole nine is happening. But that whole time through those 40 years, they apparently have a big jar, which is Jewish, Jewish custom, a big jar that's got the bones of Joseph in them, wherever they would go. 400-year-old Joseph bones follow them around wherever they went. Finally, after those 40 years, Moses dies. His servant Joshua has led the people across the Jordan River, and they begin to get into the land that God had promised, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is what we read. Check this out. Book of Joshua, chapter 24. The bones of Joseph, which the Israelites had brought along with them when they left Egypt, were buried at Shechem. In the plot of land, Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor for 100 pieces of silver. This land was located in the territory allotted to the descendants of Joseph. All right, any other nerds that just love that kind of stuff besides me? Come on. All right, me and five other people. All right, my people. I love that kind of stuff. I really think it's pretty cool. But what I want you to see here today and what I want to embrace about this is this also reminds us today of what it was that caused Joseph not to be average. He stood out in the land of Egypt in a very unique, distinct way as a follower of God. And I want us to see what it was about him that caused him to live a life like that. Because here you and I are today in the place where we live. And if we can embrace what it was that distinguished Joshua as a follower of God, then maybe, just maybe, you and I can stand out in the world that we live in. Not so that the world sees us, but I don't know about you, but I want God to see me. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are roaming to and fro about the earth, seeking whose heart is completely his. I believe God's eyes stopped roaming when he got to Joseph. There's a man whose heart is completely mine. And I think you, as I want to be today, 
I want to be that person that when the eyes of the Lord roam and they get to me, he stops and he says, that's the person I'm looking for. In Joseph, I think we're going to see what it is that makes the difference. I'm going to tell you two things. Let me say this to Grace Life to you today. This is not today just me simply tying the bow on the sermon series of Joseph. I'm going to share with you some things that in recent days God is burning deep into my heart. Some of the things that I'm sharing with you today are things that you're going to hear from me a lot in the days to come. Things that we need to hear as a church family that are going to affect us in the weeks and months and maybe even the years to come. This is not, I don't think this is going to be an ordinary sermon. I hope and I pray that we're going to look back at one point and and go, I remember that day that Pastor Joel just laid that out there. And, And that was a pivotal moment for us as God's people. So, so this is not today just putting a, a sermon period on the sermon series. This is actually, I think, going to catapult us into a new season that God has for us. So I'm pleading with you, give it all you got with me today, okay? Because I really believe with all my heart, God is up to something. He's up to something. All right, y'all with me? So I hope you take some notes, all right? Uh, get your, you, this is where I'll give you permission to be on your phone. Get your notepad out. Find something to write with. But here's what made the difference. Number one is this. Joseph had a God-centered worldview. And he held on to it no matter what. He had a God-centered worldview. And he held on to it no matter what. No matter what life was throwing at him. No matter what was happening to him, his perspective always stayed the same. God is God. God is in control. God is good. God is worthy of my trust. God is working out an unstoppable plan. You see this in Genesis 45 when he's talking to his brothers in one of those early conversations in verse 8. Listen to the God-centered worldview that Joseph lives his life with. He says, so it was God who sent me here, not you. God's behind this. And he's the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. That's the worldview that Joseph is operating with. God's God. God's in control. God is sovereign. God has a plan and his plan is unstoppable. We see that again in chapter 50. He's having one of his final conversations with his brothers who are still struggling with some guilt for what they did to him. And he says in verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. This is Joseph's worldview. It's a God-centered worldview. God is God and God is good and God is unstoppable. Joseph wasn't average because he had this belief system that was rooted in the reality of God. He had this belief system that was rooted in the character of God, what God is like. And Joseph interpreted everything in his world through those lenses. He had these gospel goggles, you might say, these God goggles that everything just made sense because of the worldview, this God-centered worldview that he lived his life with. Have you noticed today that, and I've mentioned this probably recently, but now I've got a theory. I want to share my theory with you today. Have you noticed in our society, in our world today, people are more divided 
than they've ever been before. I mean, just through the years, it seems like we've taken steps forward to experience more unity, you know, as a society, as people. But then today you look around and you go, man, what, what in the world is happening? Why are we so fragmented in our society? Well, here's my theory. It all comes down to that word, world view. I'll explain. There's a researcher by the name of George Barna who's been studying this kind of stuff for about 40 years. So he's been asking society the same questions for decades and decades and just watching, how's that changing over time? Listen to this. This is worthy for you to write down. 1991. Y'all remember, some of y'all, some of y'all remember 1991. I remember 1991. Not that long ago, 30 years ago, roughly. In 1991, 86% of people in the United States, 86% said that they had a biblical worldview of God. 86% said, they claimed, 86% said, yeah, I got a biblical worldview of God. Now, if you ask them a few more questions, you would come to realize, no, most of them really didn't have a biblical worldview of God, but that, that was their answer. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That's kind of my, that's kind of where I come from. That's sort of the background. So yes, I will assent to, I have a biblical worldview in word, but maybe not in practice. But listen to this, 30 years later, they asked the same question, but now instead of 86% saying, yeah, I have a biblical worldview of God, now only 46% are saying that they have a biblical worldview. People who've watched societal changes are shocked at how fast this has changed in 30 years. And the same thing applies. Of the 46% today who say they have a biblical worldview of God, if you probe a little bit further and you ask the right questions to see, do they really have a biblical worldview of God? Which is exactly what Barna and his people have done. And they've come back to this determination. Only 6% of Americans actually have a biblical worldview of God. That means probably, I would even say the majority of y'all in this room you really don't have a biblical worldview of God. You, you, you think you do. You, you, you have part of a biblical worldview, perhaps, but many of us inside this room may not truly have a biblical worldview. And here's the question. So if a biblical worldview is no longer what the masses of our society are claiming as their worldview, then what is the dominant worldview in our society today? And it's a worldview that Barna and his people have never seen before, as certainly as a dominant worldview, and it's called syncretism. What, what syncretism essentially is, is that now over the last 30 years, our society, maybe a lot of this has to do with how much information is available to us now, perhaps. But now what people have done is they've just walked through the buffet line of belief systems and they've said, well, I don't believe all that, but I, but I like that part of it. And I don't, I don't believe all that, but I like this part of it. And I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that. And everybody's kind of forming their, their own worldview. There's biblical worldview. There's moral therapeutic deism. There's postmodernism. There's Marxism. There's secular humanism. And our society today, and a lot of church-going people, a lot of y'all, you don't even know you're doing this, but this is the way, the way the world's going and we're following the same path. I'll, I'll, I'll grab a little of that and I'll grab a little of this. And here's what's crazy about it. These worldviews that everybody's building for themselves, they're self-contradicting. 
when you take a piece of this worldview and then you try to marry it to this piece of this worldview, but they don't go together. They, they conflict and they contradict, but people don't even see that because we have lost in our society the ability or the desire to even think. We don't even think critically, don't know how anymore. I, I can go off on that for a minute, but I'm going to reel it back in, try to stick to the sermon here today as best I can. But today we go by how we feel or how other people tell, we, tell us that we should feel. And we live by knee-jerk responses so much of the time. And let me ask you on the story of Joseph, can you imagine how much different his story would have been if he didn't have a God-centered worldview? If his worldview was, well, I'll take a little bit of the Canaanites and I'll take a little bit of my people and I'll take a little bit of the Egyptians, then I'll go by how I feel. The story would have been, totally different. Get this. Joseph was not led by his feelings. He was not led by his opinions. He was not led by the opinions of others. He was led by a God-centered world view. And if there's any hope for this old world before Jesus comes, is that the church would wake up and return to a biblical worldview of God and of this world, a God-centered worldview. Because look, the reality today, finding two people in the year 2022 who agree is kind of like a needle in the haystack. Even in this room, in recent years, I've never seen opinions and persuasions be so divisive among the people of God like we've seen it in the last couple of years. And my theory on that is it all comes down to worldview. Because where everybody's making their own tailor-made sort of worldview, the Bible uses this phrase to describe that way of thinking. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so nobody's operating from the same framework anymore. We're not sharing the same set of lenses that we're looking at the world at anymore. And Grace Life, listen to me. This is why I am asking as your pastor, the Lord, to give us wisdom in these days that we're living in. Because we're still doing church like we've always done church. And let me, let me clarify that because some of you are immediately thinking, oh, he's talking about style. They're about to get crazy. Like they're about to bring animals on the stage and weird like Eastern, you know, instruments. And they're going to start dressing. Di- I'm not talking about style. I'm talking about what really matters and what's important. We're still operating from a set of presuppositions that we've been operating with as a church for 200 years. But those presuppositions are no longer true about the culture and the world that we find ourselves in today. Does that make sense? And we've got to wake up to this reality today, Grace Life, that missions is no longer overseas. When we talk about unreached people groups, we live in a country that is an unreached people group. I know by the metrics mission boards used to call what's reached and unreached, maybe that's not so, but I'm looking around going, it's so, we're unreached. Right here, next door, down the street, and we've got to shift our thinking around that fact if we're going to make a difference in this world for God's glory. We've got to wake up and realize that, and some of you don't want to admit this, But it's true. In 30 years, and I just gave you stats, but in 30 years, we've gone from being a a Christian-type society, you might say, 
to now we're a post-Christian. No, no. Last week, maybe we were a post-Christian society. Some of you didn't even want to admit that. If you didn't want to admit you're post-Christian, I got good news for you. We're not post-Christian anymore. We've already jumped to anti-Christian. That's where we are now. It's happening that fast. Here's the part about that that I think is good news for us. That means we are forced to recognize today that we are who God has said we are all along. We're strangers here. We're pilgrims here. He's placed us here temporarily to serve him for his purposes for such a time as this. But this is not our home. And that brings me to the second thing that I want to tell you about Joseph today that made him not average in his world. And that will also make us not average. What do, what do we say the number one was? Joseph had a God-centered worldview and he held on to it no matter what. Second thing is this, Joseph knew where he belonged. He knew where he belonged. He spent a hundred years in Egypt. Egypt never got in Joseph. Think about that. He lived in his culture, serving God for a hundred years, but it never got in him. It wasn't where he belonged. In fact, before he died, we went through this a moment ago, he made his brothers promise when I die and when the Lord keeps his promise and gets y'all out of here, take my bones because I don't belong here. What God has promised is not here. It's over there. This is not home for me. This is not where I belong. He knew that what God had promised was not in Egypt. He knew that that was the promised land where they were going and that God was going to take them not only to the promised land, but through them, bring the promised Messiah, the promised Savior. And Joseph said, you got to take me with you. Listen, in that same way today, church, we got to know God has placed us in our Egypt. Joseph didn't hate his Egypt. He wasn't a jerk to Egyptians. He served God in his Egypt, just as God's called us to do. Listen, some of y'all, your response to what I'm saying is that you'll sit there and go, well, if we go back to 1991, change a bunch of stuff, by gosh, we get back to where it was. Let it go. We got to go forward. This is our Egypt. God has placed us here to share and to show the love of Jesus. This isn't where we belong. Ultimately, this is not our home. We got to live for the Lord and serve the Lord and love people and show people the love of God in this place. But this is not where we belong. And some of you think this is where you belong. You're living like this is where it all is. All your chips are in on this. How sad. This isn't where we belong. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, but we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 14, for this world is not our permanent home. We're looking forward to a home yet to come. Listen, I hope you know today beyond a shadow of a doubt that today where you ultimately belong is not here, but it's with God. I hope you know today beyond a doubt that you have a permanent home with him through his son, Jesus. If you don't know that today, I'd love to talk to you about that. In a moment when the music starts and nobody's walking out of this room, <laughs> you and I right here could have a little quick conversation about that, right? Or out in the concourse afterwards, I'd love to do that. But here's the good news today. God has a place for people to belong 
on this planet while they wait for their permanent place to belong. And it's called the church to belong to God and to belong to his people. The church is intended by God to be a place of belonging while we wait for God to get our bones out of here into our true home. Listen, I'm meeting a whole lot of friends and I'm thankful. I had some lemonade with a lot of people over these weeks and I'm lovingly telling my friends here today, you need to belong to a church. Here's another thing that's changed since 1991. In 1991, among church people, they'd go, hey, what church do you belong to? Anybody remember that old phrase where you say, what church do you belong to? But now you know what people say? At least here in the Bible Belt around here where like going to church don't mean anything. It's just like football. It's what we do, right? Here's what they ask now. Where do you attend? Because that's all it's become. But I'm telling you today, friends, you need, you need to belong to a church. And this is not me trying to like hook you into Grace Life. I want you to belong to the church, local church that God wants you to belong to. But I'm telling you, you are intended by God to know where you belong while you're in Egypt until you get to where we ultimately and finally belong. I was talking to a guy last week. He said, I really want to join Grace Life uh, because his words, he said, I need a place to belong. Listen, I believe with all my heart that that's the heart cry in our society today. This syncretism worldview, they're pulling pieces and parts from all that, but it's not really giving them what their heart's looking for. People are looking for a place to belong. And by the way, Satan is so good at building these really amazing, warm and friendly and inviting clubhouses and inviting people to belong. And that's what's happening in our world today. People are finding their community to belong in, and it's based on their skin color, or it's based on their politics, or it's based on their sexual identity. But church, we know the true place that God has intended for people to belong. It's in Christ, and it's in his church, and we need to be, listen to me, Grace Life, we need to be inviting people, all people, all kinds of people. We need to be inviting them to find their place of belonging among Jesus and his people. Last Sunday, we, we had some friends from Tuscaloosa that came up, went to church with us. And afterwards, we had a picnic, our family, their family. We went out here to the pavilion out by the lake. We hung out to about six o'clock. And this guy came out there, you know, because this is our philosophy at Grace Life. We want people to come out here and enjoy this place. But, but listen, if you're a Grace Life person, like that's not a spectator thing. We're like, oh, there's somebody. I don't know who that is. My mama would beat my butt, y'all, at church if there was somebody I didn't know who they were and I didn't go talk to them. I'm about ready to beat some of y'all's butts because that's what y'all do. You're like, oh, there's somebody I don't know that person. You've been here 30 years. Go talk to them. What's wrong with you? So this guy he starts coming over and, and no, no shoes and tank top, swastika tattoos all over his body. And we just start to have a conversation. And long story short, I end up just, he tells me about his prison time. He's telling me all kinds of stories. And his use of the English language was way different than mine, if you understand what I'm saying. But it ended with me just holding this guy and getting to pray with this guy. And us inviting him over to eat our lunch. 
And my dark-skinned little daughter handed him some homemade ice cream. If that don't change your heart, man, I don't know what will, right? And I'm just wondering, is it possible that he could belong here? I think so. I know so. And I wanted him to know that. That's why he ate with us. I wanted him to know his maker has the answers to his questions and has a place for him to belong both in this life and in the life to come. I wanted him to know that forgiveness is available through Jesus Christ. And I believe one day through a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ, that that man may just belong here. Grace Life, listen to me. Please, here is what faithfulness to God is going to look like for us as we go forward. Very specifically, I'm going to tell you today, this is what's on my heart. This is where we're going. This, This is a line in the sand kind of moment for us that I'm trying to introduce you to today in this message. Here's what faithfulness is going to look like for us as we move forward. Two things. Write them down. Number one, we must unswervingly hold to a biblical, God-centered worldview and, big and, teach others to do the same. We must hold to a biblical, God-centered worldview and lead others to do the same. Let me, let me unpack that a second. Just off, off script, off notes. I said earlier, we, we, we can't keep doing church the way we've been doing it. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the stylistic stuff. I'm talking about we're operating off of presuppositions that aren't true anymore. Let me explain that. My wife's grandmother made biscuits, like probably all our grand. How many, how many of y'all's grandma just rocked your world with the biscuits, right? I took Shannon to Waysider to eat breakfast one morning in Tuscaloosa. She starts crying while we're eating biscuits. She said, that's the first time I've had a biscuit that tasted like my grandma's biscuit since grandma died. And many times Shannon would say, Grandma, teach me how to make biscuits. And she'd say, oh, honey, I don't know how to teach you. I just do it. Grandma was at what, what I call level four. Think about a square, four, three, two, one. Grandma was at four. She was unconsciously informed about how to make biscuits. She didn't think about it. She couldn't tell you how to do it. She could just make them in her sleep, right? The step above that is consciously informed. I can look at the recipe book. I can follow the steps. I can make a biscuit. Over here at two, this is consciously uninformed. I don't know how to make biscuits. I don't know what the recipe is. And then number one, What's a biscuit? When we're talking about a biblical worldview of God, there's a handful of you that maybe you're at the four. You dream in biblical worldview. You breathe in biblical worldview. It's been in you for so long, like Joseph, that's just naturally how you see the world. But you don't know how to get somebody else to that place. And now we're living in a society of people who are, when it comes to a biblical worldview of God, and in, in your life group, and in your small groups, and in your friendships, and the people you serve behind with here at the church, they're at a one or a two. They're going, 
I don't even know what we're talking about here today. Or I know what we're talking about, but I don't know how to get there. Grace Life, here's what we got to get. If you're one step ahead of a person in that process, you can lead them. But if you're two steps ahead of a person in that process, you're going to leave them. And right now, the church is leaving people behind because we assume they're at a three and we can lead them from three to four. We're not in a society and we don't even have a church where the majority of people are at a three. And I'm glad about that, by the way. I don't care where you are. I'm glad you're here because we're on the move. God's going to take us somewhere. Amen. But I'm telling you, if you're sitting here operating from these presuppositions that everybody that's sitting in church and everybody that's out there in society, they're at a three. They're not. And we've got to change what we do. Grandma's got to figure out, okay, I got to retrace my steps and I got to go back to the day that somebody showed me how to do this. And I got to reclaim those steps and that process. So I can grab a hold of somebody that's at one or two and I can get them over here to three and then years down the road, they're just walking through life with the biblical worldview. They don't even, they're not even trying. It's just happening. Does that make sense? We're just getting started in that. You're going to hear more in the days to come. We've got to get there. Here's the second thing, Grace Life. What faithfulness is going to look like, we hold unswervingly to a biblical God-centered worldview, and we teach others to do the same. And then secondly, we must hold out the love of Jesus to a confused and a hurting world and tell them, you have a place to belong. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done or maybe even what somebody's done to you. Through Jesus, if I can belong to him, you can belong to him. If I can belong to his people, you can belong to his people. Joseph had a God-centered worldview, and he knew where he belonged. When you have a biblical God-centered worldview, and you know where you belong, your life will not be average before God. And when we share with the people around us how they can have a biblical worldview and find their place of belonging, their lives will be changed. They won't be average before God either. So God, we bow before you today. I pray, God, that you are waking us up as your people to embrace the moment, to not miss this, We have an opportunity, God, as your people, to do something our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents never got to experience. Some of us, God, you're going to have to teach us how to back up and retrace our steps and invite people to walk along with us in this journey of following Jesus. We can't sit at the number four square and yell at one and two and think it's going to change anything. God, somehow, some way, we need your Holy Spirit to hit the reset button on your church today. The hope 
for people and the hope for the world is not in who governs us. It's not in what laws are passed. It's in you, God, working in and through your people in this world. That's what you did in Joseph's life. I pray, God, that's what you do in our lives. We know this isn't where we belong. But while we're here, we want to serve you fully. We want to hold unswervingly to what we know to be true according to your word. Everything in the world seems to be pushing against that God today, but help us not swerve. And help us to know how to teach that, to share that, to impart that to others. And God, give us hearts of compassion to say to the people that maybe everybody else has said, you don't belong here, you don't belong here. God, we want people to know that in Jesus, there's a place to belong. God, because you have loved us, help us to reflect that love. Holy Spirit, help us today to stand in awe of the love of God. Refresh and renew our souls today with your love and concern and care over us. May that overflow from us to others today. In Jesus' name. I want to invite you to stand. Let's worship the Lord. And we'll respond to his word. To worship him. To bow before him. To pray. You can come to this altar. If you want to speak to me and have a conversation with me. Prayed with the lady at the end of the last service. She's got an important conversation with somebody this week whose worldview is different. And you may, maybe you have somebody you love in your life. They're operating with a, a worldview that's not true. And it's leading them down a path of destruction. Maybe your heart's heavy for them and you just want to pray today for them. You come on. You come on. I just pray we've heard what the Lord's saying today. We say, yes, Lord, I'm here for such a time as this. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Let's go. Come on.